Hey y'all, Eves here. Today's episode contains not just one, but two nuggets of history. Consider it a double feature. Enjoy the show. Welcome to This Day in History class, where history waits for no one. The day was April 8th, 1820. A farmer named Yorgos Kentrodos was digging through the ruins of an ancient city on the Aegean island of Milos, which was then known as Melos. As he was removing the stones from a wall, he began uncovering a sculpture. An ensign in the French Navy named Olivier Routier was on the island looking for antiquities when he saw the farmer. The farmer was looking for stones for a structure he was building, so he took no interest in the statue. He just covered it with dirt. But Voutier, on the hunt for relics, paid the farmer to dig up the statue. First, the farmer uncovered the top half of the sculpture, the nude torso and head of a woman. After more digging, he unearthed the lower half of the statue, then a middle section that was missing. Pieced together, it was a woman, standing with her weight shifted into one hip, cloth draped around her hips and legs, slightly larger than life-size. The farmer also found a hand holding an apple, a piece of an arm, and two herms, which are sculptures with a pillar on the bottom and a bust or head and torso of a person on top. Routier drew the pieces of the statue the farmer had found. He tried to get a French vice consul and his captain to buy the statue, but to no avail. That's the story that's generally thought to be true, although there are some conflicting accounts of the sculpture's discovery. Author and editor Paul Karras claimed a peasant named Yorgos Batones and his son Antonio found the statue in two pieces and several other marble fragments in February of 1820. But eventually, French and Greek authorities reached an agreement wherein the French would pay 1,000 francs for the statue. The Marquis de Riviere, the French ambassador to the Ottoman Turks, approved the purchase. After traveling around the Mediterranean Sea, the statue got to Paris in February of 1821. And in March, it was presented to King Louis XVIII, who soon donated it to the Louvre. At first, the French believed the sculpture to be from the classical period of Greek art, from the 5th and 4th centuries BCE. And a classical work was exactly what the Louvre wanted. But a base found near the statue attributed the sculpture to Alexandros, son of Menidas, citizen of Antioch of Meander. The Greek city of Antioch wasn't found until after the classical age, meaning the statue had to be from the Hellenistic period, an artistic age that wasn't looked upon as favorably as the classical. So the director of the Louvre said the base was not part of the sculpture. He convinced a scholar to write a paper in 1821 saying that the sculpture came out of the school of Praxiteles, a renowned Greek sculptor from the 4th century BCE. That was the official assertion for more than a century. During that century, Venus was presented as a classical marble, and generally people soaked that up, save for some critics who dismissed the sculpture's value. French scholars went up against German scholars who said that the statue was Hellenistic and that it was rightfully Germany's because it was found on land owned by Crown Prince Ludwig I of Bavaria. But in 1951, the Louvre's conservator of Greek and Roman antiquities acknowledged the Hellenistic dating of Venus de Milo. 
It's now believed that Alexandros of Antioch created Venus de Milo between 130 and 100 BCE. What actually happened to the base in question, whether it was destroyed or hidden, is a mystery. Today, the Grecian statue we mistakenly call Venus de Milo, Venus's Greek name is Aphrodite, still lives in the Louvre in Paris. And Hellenistic art is now viewed positively. The well-known marble sculpture is now considered a masterpiece in the art world, but it went through a pretty long journey to get there. I'm Eve Jeffcoat, and hopefully you know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. A couple of notes here about the Venus de Milo. Some people think she might actually be the sea goddess Amphitrite, and also the fact that her arms are missing has led many people to speculate on what she was doing with her arms when she had them. If there's something that I missed in an episode, you can share it with everybody else on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at T-D-I-H-C podcast. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you again tomorrow. Hey, y'all, I'm Eves, and you're listening to This Day in History Class, a podcast for people interested in the big and small moments in history. The day was April 8th, 1905. Anti-apartheid activist Helen Joseph was born. Helen was born Helen Beatrice May Fennell in Sussex, England. She grew up in London, where she began attending King's College of the University of London. She majored in English and got her bachelor's degree in 1927. Helen then moved to India to teach at a school for girls in Hyderabad. She taught there for a few years before she moved to Durban, South Africa in 1931. There, she met and married a dentist named Billy Joseph, who was 17 years older than her. Helen lived the life of a socialite, mixing with the white upper middle class. But by the time World War II started in 1939, the couple had grown apart. During World War II, Helen served as an information and welfare officer in the Women's Auxiliary Air Force. Through her work, she became more aware of social and political issues in South Africa. She saw that Black people were being dispossessed and how they were being discriminated against in areas like housing and education. After the war, Helen began directing community health centers in Johannesburg and Cape Town. She helped found the Congress of Democrats, which was the white wing of the African National Congress. In 1951, she took a job as secretary director of the Medical Aid Fund of the Garment Workers Union in the Transvaal province. At the time, Solly Sachs was the head of the Garment Workers Union. Sachs had a big influence on Helen. Helen became more opposed to apartheid and exposed to left-wing politics. In 1954, she helped organize a conference for the Federation of South African Women, which she later became secretary of. In 1955, she was one of the people who read out clauses of the Freedom Charter at the Congress of the People held at Klipfontein. The Freedom Charter was a statement that laid out a vision for a united and democratic South Africa. The next year, Helen helped lead a march to the union buildings in Pretoria to protest past laws, which were laws that required non-white people to carry documents that authorized their presence in restricted areas. 
Helen's opposition did lead to her persecution, as she was arrested for high treason in 1956 and later banned. She was acquitted years later, but in 1962, she was still prohibited from getting visitors on weekends or nights or socializing with more than one person at once. Helen was put under house arrest and she faced assassination attempts over the years. Meanwhile, the apartheid government was still squashing other opponents. It banned the Congress of Democrats and it passed the Sabotage Act, which broadened the definition of sabotage. Anti-apartheid leader Nelson Mandela was arrested and imprisoned, but anti-apartheid activity continued and Helen continued to be a part of that resistance. She became a sponsor of the United Democratic Front, which served as the legal internal wing of the banned African National Congress. In the last years of Helen's life, some reforms had begun to take place. Mandela was released from prison in 1990. Racial restrictions in public places were lifted. Helen died in Johannesburg in December of 1992. She wrote three books, If This Be Treason, about the treason trial she was a part of, Tomorrow's Son, and an autobiography called Side by Side. I'm Eve Jeffcoat, and hopefully you know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. And if you haven't gotten your fill of history, you can check us out on social media on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at T-D-I-H-C podcast. You can also send us an email if you have anything you want to tell us at thisday at iheartmedia.com. Thanks again for listening to the podcast, and we'll see you tomorrow. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.